This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Barry Averidge. Barry is a veteran marketing executive and acclaimed film and television director slash producer. He has made a name for himself by focusing on powerful moguls and captivating personalities, including Universal Studios' Lou Wasserman, disgraced Miramax founder Harvey Weinstein, Rolling Stones promoter Michael Cole, and jazz legend Oscar Peterson. As the co-founder of the boutique ad agency BTA Advertising, he has brought Madison Avenue to Hollywood and Vine by connecting his list of powerhouse entertainment clients with his list of financial and non-entertainment clients. In combining the arts, business, and media, Barry Averich has succeeded in building parallel careers in marketing, filmmaking, and philanthropy. Welcome, Barry, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thank you, Andrew. Uh, great introduction. Everything was accurate. You have no, you know, have no idea how many times I do these things, and there's about forty-two facts that are wrong that they've attributed to me. I did not invent the post-it note or <laughs> the Ritz cracker or anything like that. But I am in, I am in Toronto, uh, in my office, talking to you. Well, I'm going to do my best for accuracy. As you know, the the internet is either a source of good or bad. What is currently on the docket for you, Barry? What are you working on these days? On the film side, uh, I'm in the middle of uh, post-production on a documentary on Rosalia Bella, the uh, recently retired Supreme Court judge uh, who's now off to Harvard. So I'm very excited to be making a film about her. Uh, she is epic and legendary and really Canada's RBG. So that's uh, one of about five that are in the works right now. It's uh, another one that we're working on is almost the story of the movie Lion, similar story about a four-year-old young boy who's uh, abandoned in Chennai, India, ends up uh, becoming uh, homeless, living on the street, sleeping in movie theaters, eating garbage, uh, ends up becoming, uh, getting adopted, uh, moving to Canada and becoming one of the most sought after chefs. So wow. we're, we're working on that off to India in, in February to continue filming that so uh lots on the go uh and uh prepping uh to produce the scotia bank giller prize which is november 7th going to be a great great show hosted by ruby core and and sarah gadden and this of course is what i call the oscars of the book world in canada yeah well barry they talk about compartmentalizing and i can tell you i have trouble i got to keep everything in a separate silo uh hmm. do you have no problem working on multiple projects at once or how do you separate them all in your mind um, you know, I'm, I'm extraordinarily organized uh, and disciplined about keeping lists and staying on top of every detail. And it's, it's if I sort of look up at the juggling, uh, then the balls fall. So I don't look up. I just, you know, stare straight ahead and get the work done. And, you know, every, anybody who I'm working with me or I'm training, I'm, you know, I, I try to influence and inspired is you know the only way to stay ahead is to stay organized uh, as well and and being incredibly punctual about everything i always say late is the enemy of great okay i'm with you i was always told be five minutes ahead and you'll never be late and I, i'm still true. working on it let's please go back all the way and get the barry average story where were you mm -hmm. born and please describe your upbringing i was born in montreal quebec uh to uh wonderful parents uh middle-class upbringing in a suburb in, in Montreal. We didn't really want for anything because I think my parents gave me a very cultured life in that there was always music, theater, uh, went to films with my dad. We, you know, in, in during the year we went to Stratford or went, I remember going to see my first Broadway play in New York, uh, a chorus line, and which, which changed my life because the production value was so enormous in New York exploded in my head we took a bus there and i remember my father saying 
you know, do you know how much I've spent on on tickets? Twenty five dollars a ticket was a hundred dollars for the four of us, and it was like what? My God! And uh, so uh, it it was it was a, a a fun upbringing. I didn't want for anything. I had a great uh, group of friends, uh, and almost in this sort of shtetl in in Montreal. I mean, the downside of that was you just really didn't see anybody or anything else, which is why I elected to move to Toronto and go to university here. Although Montreal was a great life for me, I needed to see other things, other people, other another world. And so that's why I left. But uh, I, I have no regrets. I, I had a great family and great relatives. Well, as you say, Barry, your parents fed your thirst for show business by exposing you to theater. What did your father tell you, his only son, at the ripe age of eight? Well, two things. I mean, you know, I, I have famously written that uh, my father had advised me that, you know, not to blend in, that you could be the background or the foreground and and, and it's way better to be the foreground. Now, that's not for everybody. Uh, you know, my father was sort of an own the room kind of person. He came in big and he left often with laughter and that was his way. And so I followed that again, not for everyone. And then I think on the movie side, we went to see movies and he taught me this invaluable lesson, although he knew nothing about movies. He didn't follow the industry. We went to see movies because it was something to do. I followed the industry early on, reading Variety early on. It was obsessed with the, the lingo and that world. Not sure why, but I loved it. And what he would say to me when we went to movies was, look at the audience, not the movie. And because my father was sort of a consummate salesman, that's what he did. Uh, he sold ladies sportswear and, a, and a, um, lines of clothing that that in a company that he partnered with uh, my late uncle uh, and they, they manufactured ladies sportswear and so my father was like the master salesman in, in selling and I watched him sell how he set a room the lighting the layout of the different uh, dresses and color blocking and color names that he came up with and the models that came into the hotel rooms where he was exhibiting or showing his lines for retailers coming in. So he was great. So he knew people. He knew the psychology of a sale and the psychology of people, what, what they reacted to. And so he would say, watch the audience, not the movie. And what he meant by that was uh, what I thought he meant by that. And I interpreted that. I never really had long discussions because I, my film career came after he had died, sadly. But it was, you know, watch when the audience gets bored. Watch when they fidget. Uh, watch when they react. And... To this day, when I'm having a, a screening of my documentaries on a, on a rough cut or showing somebody something, I watch them, how they react. Are they getting bored? Are they, are they, what are they reacting to? What do I need to pump up? And so he was a great teacher without really knowing it. Is it really being aware of the consumer? Exactly. Now, Barry, you attended, before you made your move to Toronto, you attended Vanier College, which I assume was part of that unique Quebec academic program known as CEGEP. <laughs> What was yes. your experience like at Vanier College, and how did you find yourself gravitating towards their uh, film program? Well, there, you know, Vanier was a rite of passage unless you were going, you're getting early acceptance to universities in, in the United States, of which, A, I didn't have the academics for. My, my marks were sub-zero, and, and in <laughs> fact, I, I kept getting warned by the rabbi and the principals of my school that I would probably or most likely end up with an empty diploma tube. Which is very inspiring, oh. <laughs> very inspiring. But my dad keeps saying, you know, just graduate. Don't worry about the marks. And that certainly helped me because uh, it, it liberated my brain in terms of just getting out. So Sejep was, you know, that rite of passage. The good news was that I sort of got my act together in the last year of high school because there were three levels of Sejep unofficially in Quebec. There was, you know, the the, the very high end where Sejep, uh, where you were, you know, an academic and most likely going into sciences and or med school or something like that or a scientist. Then there was sort of the middle of the road, like you're okay, you're most likely going into, you know, arts or business. And then there was like a lost cause, Sasia. And, and things have since changed there. But that was, so I didn't go to the lost cause when I got my act together, went to the middle one, which was Vanier. And that was like summer camp, although I, I hated summer camp, but it was summer camp in that you chose the courses you were interested in. Golf was a course. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, and anything, art. Uh, I gravitated towards undergraduate or business courses that were interesting to me, and then loads and loads of film. And there was a teacher, uh, Robert Del Tredici, who introduced me to films that I never heard of, that my father certainly never took me to. 
Sunset Boulevard, Citizen Kane, The Seventh Samurai, The Battleship Potemkin. So, and, and we studied filmmaking. We studied not only making films, but also film history, what created tension, editing, you know, that famous uh, stroller scene, uh, which I think was Sergei Eisenstein, who, which was later replicated in The Untouchables with Brian De Palma, that's that stroller that went down the staircase. So that was unbelievable. And that's when I really started, started to pick up a camera to make horrible, but to make short <laughs> films. You know, I was dabbling already with video equipment and, and filming weddings and bar mitzvahs for people. And they were never happy because I would edit them down. You go to a wedding or a bar mitzvah, and, you know, it would be hours and hours. And I would come down like, okay, I have it. And it'd be 30 minutes. And I go, what's this? Where's that? Where's, where's Uncle Harry's speech? I cut it out. It was boring. You didn't need it. And they were like horrified. So that wedding bar mitzvah video business was very short lived. Nobody was interested in my cut downs. But, uh, but Sejep is where I, again, started to make films and, and, uh, and started to express myself. uh, And I loved it. I loved, you know, I was using song van morrison songs and uh oh my god tons of tons of interesting things and learning how to cut film splice and cut as you did then there were no you know pro tools or or online editing it was it was just all physical it was fabulous so the fire had been lit and in 1980 barry you moved to toronto where you continued to study film art and theater at both ryerson polytechnical institute now as you know tmu toronto metropolitan university as well as the University of Toronto. What do you recall about your Toronto post-secondary school experience? Well, first of all, you know, I had to tell my mother that I wasn't going to go to McGill, even though I was accepted. I wasn't going to go to Concordia, Loyola, whatever it was called. I was going to Ryerson Polytechnical Institute. And my mother was like, you expect me to tell my friends that you're going to an institute? What's an institute? (laughs) I said, it's not an institute. They call it an institute. There, you know, there's a there's there's a wonderful university in the United States, the Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute, RPI. I think it's Syracuse. That's an institute. She goes, well, you're not going there. You're, you're going to an institute in Toronto. It's not an institute. It's not an institute. No, bad branding. Bad branding. They had a wonderful program called Radio and Television Arts, but it was very academic based. It wasn't creative based. It wasn't how great are you at writing a script, editing a film you know, whatever it was, it was so academic based and they had no room the first year uh, for me. So they said, look, go into theater, go into the theater program and we'll move you into film and television after theater. I like theater, but uh, oh, well, oh my God, I got there and and they were theater people, which are, are not film people. They're the theater mm-hmm. people and they're like, and it's the uh, first course was, uh, you know, set design and lighting and tech and costume design and and uh, stage management. And I went, oh my God, what have I done here? And I went to see the principal, this guy, Sandy Black, who was a legend there. And, and uh, they had a meeting with me and they said, listen, we know you wanted film and television. We know we see talent. We know what you're good at, what you're not good at. So I'll tell you what, you do what you want to do. Pick the courses you want to do. We're not going to make you do anything you want don't want to do because you, you, you're just not going to like it. So yeah. they were great. And so I really had fun and met great friends. Eric McCormick, the actor, was there the year I went. And, uh, and it was wonderful. I, it was absolutely a wonderful year of my life. And it opened my mind in, in, in terms of theater. I mean, the one, I don't know how much time we had, but the one, you know, the one or two fun little things, I mean, to finish the semester off and at least have the marks I needed to either get into the radio television program, which I didn't ultimately end up going to. The program was so, wasn't creative. And that's not what I wanted. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to that. But to finish off the first year in theater school, I had to do two things. I had to build a model of a set that I, I was going to, I had to design. That was one thing. And then the second was that I had to, in the music program, I had to call cues, lighting and stage cues from what's called the prompt book backstage as a stage manager, you're calling cues uh, and based on a musical score. Well, I couldn't read music. I can't play an instrument. And I somehow in my brain figured that if I can pick a music score that was so obvious in its composition, that if I could recognize chunks of ink of musical notes and I could cheat and put the cues in. So yep. I picked 
Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, <laughs> which has huge moments. Ba, 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 like huge. So that, and I passed that brilliantly, sitting there with these fake cues inside chunks of Gershwin's great music. And then the set design thing was I went to a friend of mine and I said, look, you have to, he's still a friend of mine who's a, a great art director, set dresser. And I said, you've got to design this for me and build it. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And he said, all right, if you write my art history course, theater history course or exam, because you can go in with somebody's ID and write it, then I'll build this thing for you. I said, fine. So I, he said, but I'm not, I can't, he said, I can't invent it. You're gonna have to find me a set. So I went to the library and I found the set design of the most obscure play ever produced. I forget the title of the name of the show, but say it's The Sun Always Sets. And I found this in, you know, 1892, the set design from England. And I bring him the sketch and he builds it and it's fantastic, this mm -hmm. old house. And I bring the model in, you know, and, and I present it. And the professor walks around to everybody's, you know, set, their model, and he gets to mine. Who He knew I couldn't draw or build anything. He knew. Yeah. Uh, and he looked at it and he goes, that's magnificent. I said, thank you very much. He goes, it's remarkable how it looks exactly like the sun always sets <laughs> from 1893. That British play went, I've never heard of that. He goes, it's, it's the detail is magnificent. It's so similar. I, went, I, I can't believe it. So I got through that, uh, yeah. uh, thankfully, and passed and then elected to go to University of Toronto, where I figured that if I could finish off my Bachelor of Arts, my father and my brain saying, look, just graduate. I took every job I can get working part time of city television had a weekend shift of working as a, you know, an intern. I took that. I worked on music videos. I was making short films with a path that, look, get the college degree, which I never even wanted and just get to work. Yeah. Uh, so so I went to U of T. I, I had no involvement in the campus. I didn't meet any friends there. All my friends were from Ryerson and life. Uh, and I just went to U of T every day, got the courses done, all courses I were interested in. Been yeah. Great. You know, a mixture of business and art. They well, don't even treat me as an alumni. I don't get a letter, <laughs> an email from U of T. I graduated. You know, I think I've done okay. 60 films and they don't, I don't, I never even get a call. From them. I don't, I don't even think they think I existed there. <laughs> I snuck in. Hey, you were very focused, Barry. You use your life hacks. You use your negotiating skills. You got through. And while you were at school, you went to a rock concert. You saw a massive group of boisterous fans waiting at the stage door for David Bowie. The yep. light bulb went off. What was this? I thought for a moment, I yes, I did go to a concert. And, I, and you know, again, being obsessed with Hollywood and celebrity and all of that, not so much in becoming a celebrity, but just the, the sense of what that was. Paparazzi, interested in that, reading the trades, reading everything about that, going to openings and things like that. I said, wow, you know, what if an ordinary person had a fan club? What if you could have your own instant celebrity success? And that's what I created, which was something called Rent a Fan Club. And it was sort of an overnight thing. I used my friends that were out of work, actors and actresses from Ryerson. Every weekend, we would get hired. It could be somebody's birthday. It could be a new product that somebody was launching. George Cohan from McDonald's at the time hired us all the time. He had executives coming to town. So how it worked was if Andrew's wife or partner hired us and said, look, Andrew's having a birthday on the weekend. Here's where we're going to be. We're going to be at such and such restaurant. So nine of us would show up with autograph books and cameras. But we knew your entire life. We knew everything. Oh, Andrew, when, when's your next podcast? And people were like shocked. And we would get paid a couple of hundred bucks. We do a couple of these on the weekend. Everybody got some cash. And I did this, yeah, for while I was in school and then a year after I, I had left school. And then I sold it to a public relations firm, the concept. And they took it, but we did tons of them. And I loved it. I loved it. And we had such a good time. And especially the corporate gigs. I mean, we did crazy people and product launches. And uh, it was fun. Well, what's incredible, Barry, of course, is this is way before social media, before the internet, way, before computers. We, way. And the funny thing was, Andrew, that when we launched it, you know, my, my friend, God, I don't know where he is, but he, he was the publicist for Robert de Rossier, a great dance company. And he, he said, well, you need a press release. And I didn't know what that was. And he sent out a press release. And suddenly we were on the news, what's called road blocking. We were on, on every station at the same time being interviewed 
for rent a fan club. And I, I lived in this one room apart with an answering machine. And so they would put my phone number on the screen on TV and on radio, well, radio they'd mention it. And I came home and my answering machine was exploded with people wanting to book us. Uh, it was fun. Barry, you went on after university to have kind of two parallel careers. You had yep. filmmaking, you had advertising. If you don't mind, let's start with the filmmaking career. Mm -hmm. While you were pursuing your advertising career, you began with film. You had a breakthrough experience watching Blood Simple. It was yep. by a pair of then unknowns, the Coen brothers. When you saw this, what were your first steps? Well, I mean, I always liked the Coen brothers uh, and, and loved how they were sort of the enfant terrible of film and that their, their filmmaking was extraordinarily inventive and creative in terms of storytelling and, and the filmmaking itself. So they stuck in my brain and I wrote a very dark short script called The Madness of Method. Uh, and it was about a, 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 a acting, an actor, sort of a, a, a young nerdy actor that cannot get work in New York. He goes from audition after audition after audition. He's ready to just give it up. And he sees a sign, uh, a little posting for an acting coach at an audition where he's since failed. Uh, and he would come in for serious dramatic auditions and, and, and end up singing songs from Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, <laughs> nothing worked for him. And he saw this acting coach ad up on a bulletin board, Rudolph Thor Thorndike III, who had a, a method to, uh, in, in terms of his teaching. And so he goes to see Rudolph Thorndike and they begin this almost dark, dark relationship as, as the acting coach takes the actor through his method of acting, which is very dark and macabre. Uh, and so I wrote this as a dark comedy. I don't know what recesses of my mind it came from, but definitely Coen Brothers influenced. I got together with a friend of mine who said, well, let, why don't I help you produce this? You'll direct it. And I said, great. And, and I, she said, well, you know, who do you think should play Thorndike? And I said, well, I had just seen Blood Simple. I said, you know, great character actor, M. Emmett Walsh. I mean, he's so frightening. And she says, I did a film with him. I, I know him. Let me send the script to him. And I said, okay. I mean, you know, why, why would this Hollywood actor want to do this? Yeah. Uh, and she sent it to him and he said, okay, uh, I will do it. He has to shoot it in two days. I'll come to Toronto. Uh, and it was the winter. Uh, and then I got on the phone with him for a conference call to talk about the script. And he said, look, I'm going to do this. You've got two days to film it. That's all I think you need. If we do 10 pages a day, then, you know, he'd figured it out. Yeah. But the only condition is, he said, you know, it was a two-hander, meaning two people in it, that, uh, well, a slight cameo, which we'll come back to. But the the other actor, the, the, the actor, uh, has to be played by... Richard Kind. And Richard Kind at the time was on Mad About You, went on to be, be on Spin City and other shows and wonderful character actor. And I said, of course. <laughs> so, you know, I flew them into Toronto. It was the winter. We were filming in a freezing cold warehouse in uh, Liberty Village in Toronto, warehouse district of old carpet factories. Uh, and they shot a lot of TV series in there. So there were, there were some good offices uh, and space for us to film in. Uh, and I don't know if you want the whole story, but it was a, it was a, ended up being a, a nightmare shoot because Emmett, who had always been a character actor, was now the star, and he yep. very much abused me uh, <laughs> mentally and and just made it a very very difficult shoot. But I'm proud of the film. It's it's you could see it on uh, a streaming service called Broadway HD now, uh, and it's uh, it, it was important for well, me. Barry should be more than proud, of course, as you know, it ended up winning a gold medal for best short film at a Spanish film festival. But even more <laughs> importantly, you managed to sell the film yourself to many different television networks. I did. I did. I, in, those more, in those days, short films were not really a, a medium that anybody wanted. But it, first of all, I had entered it in. I don't even know how I entered it into a, a you know, prestigious film festival, the Bilbao Film Festival in Spain. And I got a, 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 a telegram then wasn't even that long ago, but a telegram saying that I had won, you know, 17,000, whatever the currency was, is before euros. Uh, yep. And I went, what? And it's before computers. So I took the, the this cable to the bank and I said, how much have I won? They said $7,000. I went, <laughs> what? 
And I and with a gold bear, I don't have it in my office here, but this gold bear of a statue, trophy, uh, and this cash, and it was like, wow. Uh, and then so I started to sell it to different TV stations, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I'm proud of it. Well, you're off and running, and your filmography is absolutely huge. So I'm just going to pluck out a few notable ones and get your thoughts. You earned your reputation as a provocative filmmaker with 2005's The Last Mogul about mm -hmm. super powerful Hollywood agent and executive Lou Wasserman. Now, I have to say, Barry, producing a biography on this reclusive guy was considered career suicide. He had made it clear that he would never participate in any kind of biography. He threatened anyone who dared try, either while he was alive or dead. Yeah. You were smart enough to wait till he died, and then you commenced production. And in spite of all kinds of family legal threats and anonymous physical threats, your film, The Last Mogul, was a massive success. Tell us about that whole experience. Well, I mean, again, being intrigued by Hollywood and the stories that haven't been told, Lou Wasserman invented what it was to be an agent. He invented packaging, meaning combining as the, the star, the writer, the director, and selling the whole package, created movie of the week for, for television. He was unbelievable. And he'd come from a, you know, Cleveland as a tough guy connected to the mob and made his way and eventually running Universal Studios. And so I was, I was beyond fascinated by him. No, no documentary had been made. There'd been several books on him, uh, The Last Mogul and uh, Mr. And Mrs. Uh, show, Mr. And Mrs. Hollywood. And so I, I said, you know, I don't know, again, what possessed me. I said, I'm just going to get it done. Why not? And I think as a Canadian, same thing when I did the first film on Harvey Weinstein, I think that, you know, as, as Canadians, the rest of the world just doesn't think you're going to do it or they don't think it'll be seen outside of Canada. Mm -hmm. So uh, The Last Mogul for me was not my first film, but the first film out of the gate that, that got internationally recognized, played film festivals, had been called Oscar worthy by The Hollywood Reporter. And, and that became certainly a, a great calling card, got me my first agent in Los Angeles and... Uh, where, you know, getting your first agent in Los Angeles sounds good, but as David Brown, who was a great friend of mine who died, who produced films like Jaws and The Sting, uh, had told me that Hollywood is the only place in the world where you can die of encouragement. <laughs> and it was true. I, I would go to meetings. I'd get flown to Los Angeles and go to these meetings. And I, I, I'd leave the meeting. I went back to the hotel and I called my mother. I go, Ma, I, I'm signing a contract. Ma, they're, they're interested in making this film. Ma. And then nothing would happen. Yeah. <laughs> But it keeps you going, perhaps. Uh, well, it sure did. And how did you deal with all these both uh, verbal and physical threats? Uh, you got the film done and whatever happened with all those? Were they uh, false threats or? I, I've thrived on it. I mean, there isn't a film I've made where there hasn't been some roadblock or, or speed bump. It, it's, it's what it is. I like the tension and the stress. Sometimes it's been, been personal attacks. Sometimes it's been humiliating. Sometimes it's been hurtful. You know that's okay. Uh, you you know you you uh, I've got tough skin. You learn or I've learned early on from crazy moguls that it's never personal. Uh, you just keep going. I want to talk about 2006 satisfaction. Michael Cole and the Rolling mm. Stones. This uh, profile of the promoter Michael Cole put you face to face with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Talk about this piece. I'm looking at pictures of them right now. That well, Michael Cole was somebody I knew because our ad agency represented him for his entire career from beginning as a, as a, a, a small concert promoter in Toronto to reinventing the business and, and eventually landing the stones in 88 and then 89 for the famous steel wheels tour. So I knew him, I saw him upfront and personal as they say. And so again, it became almost immediate for me in terms of my thinking that he would be the next big mogul for me to make a film about. Uh, and, uh, and he, again, they call him the Howard Hughes of rock and roll. Uh, he did not, go gently into the night uh, at the beginning or the end of the making of the film. Um, his story was so spectacular. And, and uh, I don't think he liked the process of making the film. Ultimately, when he saw it and saw the reaction to it, he did like it. And it did give me an opportunity to meet some incredible people. Yes, you mentioned a few of them, and, and including Bob Saget of a story that I can never tell because it's so filthy. Yep. Uh, that, that I, I couldn't even put him in the film. He was just, he was so dirty which he was famous for but yeah uh, a lot of fun now the uh, the other coal you covered in 2008 citizen coal the untold story and this was a biography of dusty coal 
this was uh, he, he was the cousin, I understand, of Michael Cole. He was the founder of the Toronto International Film Festival, then known as the Festival of Festivals. What uh, prompted you to produce this one? Well, Dusty was, uh, you know, I've been lucky in life to have three fathers, uh, you know, my own, uh, who died, you know, young enough or, or too young uh, for, for to really see me uh, flourish. Uh, Dusty Cole, who, you know, immediately stepped in uh, when I, uh, almost when I moved to Toronto and became a father figure to me, uh, love him and miss him daily. And Eddie Greenspan, the famous criminal attorney, were all father figures for me. So very blessed to have had three fathers and three influencers and saviors in a lot of ways. Dusty, again, was a guy who shared offices with Michael Cole, who shared offices with our ad agency. So I would see him daily. This man came in larger than life, six foot tall, you know, cowboy hat, beard, cigar smoker. And I was instantly drawn to him. And my boss at the time kept saying, you know, stay away from him. You know, he's a user and uh, he'll want, he'll get you to, well, not a user, but he'll get you to do things for him. And I, and I was fine with that. And so yeah. we became super close friends and I made two films, short films about him. One was Citizen Cole, which was, uh, Dusty had something called the Floating Film Festival, which I still run, which is a film festival on a boat. That year we were doing, we were showing Citizen Kane with Roger Ebert was going to show Citizen Kane on the on the boat. So I created Citizen Cole as a surprise to Dusty and then ended up showing it at the Toronto Film Festival uh, opening night when Dusty had passed away. When you went on, Barry, to 2008, you covered Jackie Mason, the ultimate Jew. Jackie mm -hmm. Mason was on nobody's radar. Like, clearly you don't follow what's popular at the moment. You follow people that you find important and influential. What prompted you to put this together and what was that process like? Uh, Jackie had hired me to work on a bunch of shows for him. We had done a horrible musical, Jackie Mason musical. I'm looking at the playbill right now in my office called Laughing Room Only, uh, which was awful. And, and I would book him for gigs for people. And we just became buddies. I'd go to New York and we'd go for lunch and, you know, and, and uh, I just got a kick out of his perspective on life. I mean, he ended up becoming really right wing later on uh, mm. but we became friends uh and and they hired me to work on a few more of his shows and then they him and his uh, wife jill rosenfeld said look we're going to do one more show in new york our last show uh called the ultimate jew and i said let me film it mm. let me film it uh and uh and that's what we did we released it and uh it was a great experience we would we would filmed about three performances in between. We'd go to Joe Allen's in New York, where he ended up getting into almost a, a, a loud, verbal, uh, vulgar fight with Jerry Stiller and his wife, Ann Mira, because J uh, Jackie had felt that they were rude to him 38 years earlier. Yikes. They just, they just yelled at each other across from their t across from Joe Allen, or not across, but across the restaurant in Joe yeah. Allen. Yelling, and, and everybody in the restaurant thought it was a joke. Oh, it was no. no joke. I'd walk back with Jackie to film the second half of the show or to film a, an evening performance. And I go, you don't know how rude those people are. They love and he'd go on and on and on. And it was like, Jackie was like 38 years ago. He goes, I don't care. He's a drunk. She's a drunk. He's a, you know, it's like, okay. I'm glad we didn't see uh, Jerry Stiller and Jackie Mason come to blows. Came close. <laughs> now, Barry, a big project for you. It was way kind of ahead of what he's more known for now, Harvey Weinstein, 2011, unauthorized, the Harvey Weinstein Project. He, at the time, was best known for founding Miramax with his brother, Bob. He was polarizing even then. In your film, he was portrayed as 50% asshole, 50% genius. And it's, of course, notable that this was a full decade ahead of his sexual assault convictions that kicked off the Me Too movement and kind of led to him being persona non grata. As we tape this today, he's, in mm -hmm. fact, facing a new round of sex crime allegations in a Los Angeles courtroom. Today. Were you shocked at his tremendous fall from grace since your doc? No, uh, be, uh, because, uh, you know, again, I, I was, when I when I made the first film unauthorized, that was another sort of last mogul thing. Why, there, I had read stories and many documentarians had tried and, you know, he was so connected and powerful that he prevented people. But I had, I had, I had basically detected a weak spot. I knew he was out of money. I knew he was in trouble. Uh, you know, but he was the great magician. He had, he was about to go uh, into Oscar season 
for uh, the King's speech, this could turn everything around. So I was fascinated by that. So I said, all right, I'm going to do it. Screw it. Found a network in Canada that would back it. Uh, and then became the assault of people, Michael Cole trying to talk me out of it because they had been partners and, uh, and Harvey himself uh, almost emphatically calling me every week because I was making progress. He prevented mm -hmm. a lot of people from talking to me, Quentin Tarantino and uh, uh, who else? Uh, uh, Gwyneth and Alison Anders, many people that had grow up, grew up in the house of Miramax. But now this was the Weinstein company. And, uh, and he, you know, we had a, an infamous meeting in Los Angeles where he was offering me everything from money to other filmmaking opportunities. And I'd say, but I, I'm finished. I'm finished mm -hmm. now. So what did I know? I, that's the famous question. I didn't, you know, you, you knew that, you know, that Harvey was uh, not exactly faithful in his marriages. Uh, you knew that. Um, nobody knew anything about abuse or rapes. Um, or I certainly didn't know that going in. However, I ended up sitting down with um, Ken Oletta, uh, who ended up just publishing a book called The Hollywood Ending about Harvey. Uh, and uh, and I interviewed him for the first film, Unauthorized. And, and he said, you know, I'd love to tell you a story, but you have to turn your cameras off. Okay. And I said, well, you know, he goes, no, no. And then he actually walked around and looked to see if the cameras were off and then told me these these allegations of Harvey's abuse and that he forced Harvey to come. He was writing a profile on him and for New Yorker magazine. And this is long before Ronan Farrow and Jody Cantor and uh, Megan Twally, long before the New York Times, long before that. Uh, and he had forced Harvey to show up to his hotel room in New York and show him cancel checks to prove that Disney had not paid for the settlements to these women. Mm -hmm. uh, and Ken had the story, but couldn't get anywhere with it. And he wouldn't go on camera telling it. So it bothered me that I was releasing this film called Unauthorized without that part of Harvey. Although there were things in there that bothered Harvey. I mean, the great George Hickenlooper, um, director of Factory Girl and, uh, uh, and the Jack Abramovich film with Kevin Spacey about lobbyists, I uh, can't remember the name, uh, told a story about, you know, Harvey insisted on how a sex scene needed to be filmed. And it was very abusive in, in its nature and violent and now how he wanted it shown. And Harvey hated the fact that, that was in the film and always worried that I knew stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Harvey famously hired this black cube, these Israeli ex-Mossad private investigative firm. And, and they would have fake journalists call me. Uh, when I was writing my book to find out what I knew or didn't know wow. uh, on that. So it bothered me with unauthorized after the allegations came out and, and, uh, and he was being tried that that film, um, that that film was out there, although not really. I mean, uh, the other part of that story was that when unauthorized was finished, IFC owned by Harvey's best friend, the Dolan family flew to Toronto to the Toronto film festival and bought the film from me and then buried it. So oh. very hard for it to be seen. I'm going to re-release it because my license is coming to an end with uh, IFC. So I will re-release re it. So I, because of that film, really didn't get into those allegations because I didn't have anything. And no yeah. one would go on camera. I then ended up doing The Reckoning, uh, which was the first Me Too film, which was very difficult to sell because Hollywood at that time was being ripped to shreds for what people hid and, and, and didn't say. And so The Reckoning, which Hulu ended up buying, was a tough sell because it was, it was again, the first Me Too film. And uh, Barry, when you do, if you do re-release the unauthorized Harvey Weinstein Project film, would you update it? Of course. Uh, or do you consider kind of Reckoning to be kind of the, the part two, so to speak? No, I, you know, I, I would re-release um, unauthorized with, with um, uh, you know, the, 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 the stuff that never got told. So it's a more fulsome and honest biography of this man. Uh, I mean, you know, you can't negate uh, the, the, uh, the creative output when he was at his best. But at the same time, it's, you know, a, a Shakespearean uh, tale. You have to put all the bad in there as well. And uh, as we mentioned, the story is still being written. So even today, so there's yes. more to come. Yeah. Oh, Harvey yeah. Weinstein. Yeah. 
Yeah. Let's talk about someone more beloved, 2019, David Foster, off the record. Uh, you put this together, mixing archival footage, interviews, and you had kind of unprecedented access to Foster to look at his whole career. What was that project like? Unbelievable. Uh, I, you know, it, it was the project was brought to me. I knew who David Foster was. I knew the career. I said, OK, you know, it wasn't a film initially that was on my radar. Uh, so I flew to Los Angeles to meet him. And I'll be honest, and I've said this, our, our chemistry was not good. Um, he was dismissive of my other film work. Uh, I don't know what he saw or didn't see. I think as, as typical famous people, they want other famous people to make a film about them. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think I can get, you know, in Clive Davis, I'd met him to make his documentary about his life. And he said, well, I'm going to, I can get Ridley Scott. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> and I think David Foster was the same thing. He thought he can get, you know, Steven Spielberg or somebody, uh, to do this or, someone legendary who am i you know yeah. somebody from canada so it was not good and i walked away and i called uh the people that had brought the project to me and i said uh I i'm not doing this i don't like him okay uh, and, and so i walked away for a year and then his manager mark johnson called me and said hey barry you know are you in new york i said uh yeah i'm in new york and uh and he said uh oh no sorry where are you i said i'm in los angeles and he said are you going to that Canadian Academy thing at the Canadian consulate. I said, I am. He goes, well, David's going to be there. I'm going to sit him next to you. And you got, you have to do this film. I said, okay, I'll, I'm happy to meet with him again. And we, we go to the Canadian consulate thing. We're seated at a lunch and he turns his chair away from me. He doesn't even talk to me. And, I, <laughs> and, I, and again, I, I walk away from that saying, I'm not doing this film. And another year passes. And then Mark, again, his manager called me and said, uh, are you in New York? I said, I am in New York. He goes, come by. We're at the whatever hotel. And David's meeting on some Broadway shows he's working on. And, you know, we'd really like to sit with you and talk about this. So I went and I pretty much said to them both, I said, look, I'll do it, but it's got to be on my terms. I, I can't have you, you know, editing this film and telling me who needs to be in it. I'm open to collaborating, but it's what I do. And this is it. Yes. Yeah. Or no? And they were yes. And I have to tell you, the project collaboratively was amazing uh, and David flew into Toronto. I rented a screening room. I showed it to him for to make sure that there was nothing wrong, inaccurate in the film. He didn't have the rights to change anything. Yeah, uh, he had he had a right to look at it once, and he did. and uh, And he cried, which is tough for him. Not an emotional guy. Mm. He loved it. Uh, and even you know, when we sold it to Netflix. They wanted even a tougher version, which sent me back into the studio to film David being way more candid about certain parts of his life, which he willingly did. So that version, which is on Netflix in the U.S. and the world and in, on, in Canada on Crave called The Director's Cut, is a way more uh, authentic and transparent look at David. But I, I loved it. I mean, again, met great, great people who I idolized as well as had a you know, pleasure working with uh, on that film from, you know, Celine Dion to Buble to, you know, Lionel Richie, everybody. Well, you, you hung in there. What's the lesson learned? patience and stick to your guns or um you know in this business you're not going to be a complete ass that's that's going to be my way or the highway in terms of making films i think the key is to be you know uh, um, passionately collaborative without giving up your integrity mm -hmm. i want to hear how that relates to collaboration in 2020 howie mandel but enough about me a documentary about uh, another toronto legend Lovely guy. I mean, I, you know, uh, I, I, Howie and I, I'm trying to think of Howie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had filmed him for a Canada's Walk of Fame documentary that I did called Beyond Famous that looked at, I don't know whether it was 20 years or something. It was a history of, of Walk of Fame, Canada's Walk of Fame. And so I got went down to Howie's studio in Los Angeles to film him. And it was just an instant chemistry between us of two old comedy people talking about people we loved. And uh, he didn't know who I was. Uh, and yet we really fell in love with each other. It was, it was fun. He said, look, the next time you're in LA, let's hang out. We did. And then he brought me a, a film project, uh, a family that he knew that was a couple of young filmmakers that were trying to make a film about a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor who had come out of the closet 
uh, and uh, terrible term, but had basically told his family that he was gay uh, and how his wife and his family was dealing with this 90 year old Holocaust survivor telling them that he that he had come out uh, and uh, how he said, look, they shot this. It's a mess. They don't know what to do with it. They think they know what they do with it. Would you come in uh, and fix this and produce it? Uh, and so I did. And it opened at the Toronto Film Festival and, and it, and it uh, called On My Way Out, it became a very important LGBTQ film, but in, a, in an environment that you would never expect, of, you know, a 90 year old uh, uh, Holocaust survivor. And so uh, in spending that time with Howie, and it was not easy because the young filmmakers were really threatened by me, hmm. I'm taking away their creatives. I'm not taking away your creative. It was your idea. It's your grandfather. Um, you've got, you know, final cut. But it's, you know, at the time, some 50 films in, I, I, I can help you with this. And we fought like crazy. They fought me and Howie was always the referee. Yeah. And it was it was his money. So uh, we became even closer on that. And then I just said, you know what, why not a documentary on you? Uh, and, and we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun making it. And uh uh, it was, uh, it, 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 uh, it, it's it, again, great people and allowed me to spend time with them on the road. And it really wasn't famous people talking about Howie, it, none at all. It was all Howie. And, and keep in mind, the film was made during COVID. Uh, we filmed during COVID. We, uh, we, uh, you know, edited, did post-production during COVID. Very, very tough, uh, to do, but we got it done. And, and the irony of course, is that, you know, this is a man that was, you know, had been in COVID his whole life. Yeah, <laughs> a very noted germaphobe. Yeah. Barry, I want to ask you about one more project, which I believe is your most recent, the concert doc on Canadian jazz legend Oscar Peterson. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was truly a labor of love for me. Growing up in Montreal, I didn't even know he was from Montreal. I didn't know him. Never, never had, had I met him once, but did not personally have uh, any kind of relationship with him other than we had Oscar Peterson records in our house and my mother would take me to see him at Place des Arts. Uh, and, and I don't even remember him being introduced as Montreal's own. So I, I, his music has always stayed in my head. Uh, and, uh, and so that was a, a film uh, I wanted to make, but in a way that allowed Oscar to tell his own story. So we traveled the world uh, finding uh, obscure and never seen or heard before interviews with him during every stage of his life to tell mm -hmm. a story intercut with musical performances by current musicians uh playing his music and that was inspired by the film um standing in the shadows of motown and 20 feet from stardom which had these wonderful musical interludes to give the audience a break which was much needed because oscar's playing is so voracious and dense that you needed these breaks uh, and, and that's, that's what that film, uh, was. And, and I'm very proud of it. We just had a big screening in New York city for the Broadway music community, uh, where Joe Seeley, the great Canadian pianist came down, Charles Turner performed as a great jazz artist in New York. And, uh, we're going to release the film in Japan. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's being released in Sweden and Greece and England. And I'm very happy. Fantastic. Well, I think, Barry, when you talk about all, you talk about your three fathers, so to speak, these influencers, I did want to ask you more about some of your mentors. In mm -hmm. fact, I had five names to bounce off. You you alluded a little before about Dusty Cole. Maybe you'll give a few more words about his influence on you, and then I'll give you some more names of mentors in your life. I mean, Dusty was the great connector. Uh, and, and, you know, when I came to Toronto uh, and met him, he was just, hey, meet this kid introducing me to everybody. Uh, and later on in my life, as I started to sort of develop connections, I then took him to Los Angeles or I take him to meet celebrities. And we were working with Jack Palance or James Earl Jones or Don Adams on a series of commercials. I, I would always include Dusty because it was my time to for payback with him. But uh, it, it, whenever I had an issue with people with, that were immoral uh, or tough show business lessons, he would just negotiate and work through them with me and I miss him daily. Well, Dusty's cousin, Mike, Michael Cole, he kind of reimagined, reinvented the entire concert industry. What was his influence on you? 
Uh, I, I just, in terms of Michael, again, I didn't know him or have a personal relationship with him. I mean, we, we you know, we're very friendly when we see each other. We had the, uh, the, the, uh, the you know, Dusty between us, uh, and I've worked on various Michael Cole projects. But I think if anything that, that I learned from Michael Cole was um, production value, quality of how he did things, and also vertical integration. When he took the concert touring business, he added and reinvented merchandise and how merchandise was sold at the concert. It wasn't just a crappy t-shirt, but there were 50 things, 50 SKUs, television rights, uh, sponsorship. You know, when the Rolling Stones went out with steel wheels, it was, you know, Sprint, Anheuser-Busch, Labatt's. I mean, the man knew how to vertically integrate uh, and bring, as you said at the beginning of the, the podcast, Hollywood uh, uh, and Madison together. When you talk about dealing with complex people and complex situations, you got a lot of guidance from the late legendary lawyer, Eddie Greenspan. You spoke of him briefly. What was his role with you, Barry? Just, uh, you know, this was a man who was voracious in the courtroom, brilliant, a, a, a an incredible uh, brain and intellect. Uh, you can sit and talk to him about world politics, uh, the criminal uh, mind, uh, the justice system, and then butter tarts. Uh, he loved <laughs> to eat. Uh, and we, we smoked endless cigars and ate volumes of food together. Uh, we, you know, we would generally have dinner once a week and then smoke cigars Saturday afternoon together. Uh, and then as, as life was sort of continuing for him and he was getting older, we, we would get together more often. Uh, and he was somebody that, that his, his, Death gutted me. Loved mm -hmm. him. You uh, had a lot of relations with Garth Drabinsky, theater impresario. Much has been written, of course, about his fall from grace. But I think you you learned something from watching his, his kind of passion for theater. What would you say about Garth Drabinsky? Well, I made a documentary about him. Uh, I think, you know, Garth is, again, another Shakespeare tale. I mean, he talked about in his book of, of Icarus flying too close to the sun. Garth lived on the sun. Uh, you know, uh, it didn't matter how hot it was. He would, he took enormous chances. There's no question a flawed genius. Uh, and by flawed, you know, the criminality side of things you can explore forever. I think this is a man who just constantly wanted to succeed and, uh, played roulette, hoping that, uh, that wheel would turn and hit his number each time, no matter what the cost was. Uh, and, uh, uh, and paid the price for it. There's huge great that he did for the uh, theater community in Canada and actors and productions that he's nurtured. And then, you know, there's, there's horrible things too, in terms of, you know, creditors and, and, and uh, companies that, you know, he ruined as a result of his, his business uh, being destroyed. But this is a guy that, you know, even as recently being on Broadway with his show Paradise Square, he always, I don't know that he always picks the best material, but you know he he uh, you, know, you you can't seem to uh, uh, send him away. He just keeps doing it. Amazing. Well, he's a good he's a good example of life's not black and white. There's shades. Oh, well, I, oh yeah, for sure. Barry, I want to ask you about one last mentor. Uh, Gino Empri was kind of the original Uber publicist. He was the one-time gatekeeper for the Royal York's Imperial Room. I think this is from a time that uh, younger listeners won't even appreciate. Do you want to talk a little about Gino Empri? Gino Empri was uh, sort of owned the Canadian show business scene. Uh, he was an impresario, a publicist, a manager. He managed Tony Bennett. At one time, he had one of those offices behind the gardens, Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, covered in celebrity photos, all signed to him. Cary Grant, Rock Hudson, you know, uh, Ginger Rogers, Farrah Fawcett. All the signatures looked a little similar, but he, he, was, he, was, he had a volcanic temper. Uh, I learned very early on from him and Garth Rubinsky that, and you know, all these people yelling at me that it, it was never about me. It's just, that was performance art. Uh, and so if you took it personal, you died. Uh, mm. But Gino, uh, uh, again, manager and publicist for the Imperial Room. The Imperial Room was almost like, uh, you know, the Stork Club in New York, all the celebrities from Tina Turner and sort of the C part of their lives. Uh, Act two came to perform, Donald O'Connor, Mel Torme, and he would, manage all the PR for the Imperial Room and, and the bookings. And then, of course, was the Mervish's, Ed Mervish's uh, PR guy for the Royal Alex and then the Prince of 
Prince of Wales until they they let him go, which was tragic for Gino because he thought he'd be the Mervish's guy till the day he died. Uh, he was misunderstood. He was insane. He was brilliant. Uh, a, a bit of a mess physically with, you know, just, just a crazy character to look at, a, a horrible toupee, uh, a Zodiac goldfish around his neck, his shirts open down to his belly button. He drove like a maniac. He was, was constantly screaming and yelling, but an education I, I, uh, I loved. Well, you got an education from all these guys, Barry. Oh, boy. You, you've been great with your time. I want you to provide some lessons learned now. Your pioneering business tactic was combining art and commerce, as we've spoken about. It was described as Madison Avenue meets Hollywood and Vine. What exactly does that mean, and how does it apply to uh, young people coming up that ask for your advice? Well, I, look, I say to everybody coming in that, you know, you, you, you have to do what you love. Uh, and, and if it's selling shoes, great. Uh, if it's making television commercials, great. If it's, you know, designing uh, computer software, great. As long as you're happy getting up in the morning and loving what you do, don't settle, don't compromise. The Hollywood and Vine and Madison Avenue is just understanding that, and my own, this is for me personally, that there needs to be something very commercial, fun, and explosive whenever you're marketing something. And I recognized early in my advertising career that, that the world loves Hollywood. At the time, you know, we, when we when Michael Cole had his concert business, Coca-Cola came in because Coke wanted to be a sponsor. Then Labatt's wanted to be in the entertainment business because they can get, you know, more, they could sell more beer and sell more Coke if they're somehow aligned with the celebrities and the tours and things like that. And so we just really uh, uh, built on that. We went to American Express and created front of the line in, in 19... 88, 87, somewhere in there where it gave card members the opportunity to get tickets before anybody else. So it was that combining of Hollywood. And even to this day, you know, I, I think in my ad agency world, our, our clients love us because we take a very cinematic show business approach to everything we launch. Go big, own your lane, own your category. And so when you open up, whether it's an art exhibit, an opera, uh, a uh, uh, launch, a new can of soup, that the only thing people are talking about you on, or the only thing people here are talking about on that day is you. Good advice. Make it big and get your message Go in. Go big. Barry, where can we best follow you and all your upcoming projects? Uh, you know, not complicated. You know, just I'm out there. You can Google. I mean, you know, I, I, I use Instagram for business. And so that could be uh, found at, at BarryAverage22. Uh, and, uh, then, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm not shy. You can see stuff out there. <laughs> it's good. I mean, it regularly, I mean, for film stuff, I would regularly check CBC gem. Uh, we have a film opening. I don't know when this is airing, but we've got a film opening, uh, on, uh, October 21st called the talented Mr. Rosenberg, which is sort of a, uh, catch me if you can Tinder swindler film. And that's going to be on CBC gem. Um, so that's the next one. And then October 16th. Uh, whether this is dated or not, uh, I directed uh, a, a stage-to-screen production of The Three Tall Women, uh, Edward Albee's play with uh, Martha Henry, uh, last performance before she passed away, and she was theater royalty, and that's definitely worth seeing on, uh, again, CBC Gem or, or at uh, Stratford Fest at home. Excellent. Always lots on the go with you. Yes. I do want to give a quick shout out to Susan Minnick. She's an excellent host and producer over at Canadian Jewish TV on Omni Television. She was nice enough to introduce us. Yes. And Barry, I want to thank you greatly for your time, and I wish you continued success. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure being here with you. And to our listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. On behalf of Barry Averich, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. 
Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.